Okay, so later in the show, we're going to talk about pest control. And I was wondering, and you may not be actually comfortable doing this, but I was wondering if you would share the story you told me about the rodent you found in your garage. Or is it that too much? I mean, is if if Becky finds out about this, is it too too much to come back from? Uh, no, I think it was long enough now that uh, that she'll be okay with it. Um, yeah, I. It's really <laughs> gruesome. Sure? I don't know why you want me to tell this story. It's awful. Uh, I uh, I left like a. <laughs> <laughs> I left a container of water, like a little bucket, um, in uh, in the garage uh, in the winter, and um, it, it was probably filled like two thirds of the way with water. And at one point, I like it, at one point, I like I don't spend much time in the garage, right? And and uh, I, I went out there, and in the bucket were three mice that had uh, died in the water. And like their little noses were like sticking up through <laughs> ice. Like it, uh, you know, they froze like Han Solo and Carbonite in this water. Uh, and so I get my, my guess what happened is like they went in there uh, to get a drink of water and then were unable to climb back out the sides because they were like slick plastic sides of a bucket. For whatever reason, when you first told me the story, I, th- I thought it was like a crock pot. Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, it was like the inside. I just, I didn't want to go into like, I didn't think that was a relevant detail. So like, basically. <laughs> it's a, such a relevant detail. It was like the anyway. inside ceramic uh, <laughs> liner of a crock pot. Yeah, not a bucket. Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 640 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 19. Welcome to the show. My name is Joe. Uh, My name is Chad. And we're glad to be back. Yeah. Should we let the the cat out of the bag that we're going to take a break after episode 20 until the holidays are over? Sure, we can do that. Yeah, we'll remind everybody after next episode or during next episode. But we have been working really, really hard on the show and it's been a lot of fun, but we're going to take a few weeks over the winter holiday and come back in 2020. Yep. So prepare for that. I have a bad feeling about 2020. I feel like it's going to be a rough year. Well, there's a lot on the line. <laughs> there is there's always a lot on the line. <laughs> you live in a high stakes world, Joe. <laughs> You've been putting it up your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so each week we spend a little bit of time talking about billionaires in the news. And now I think is the time that we're going to go have that conversation. All right. Billionaires in the news. So there were all kinds of things in the news this week, isn't that right? Uh, so the, yeah, there was a lot of stuff, um, but we're only going to cover a couple of things. Uh, maybe we'll come back to some of the other stuff that happened uh, later in the future. Um, 
really just a couple of things to talk about. I wanted to start out with something uh, that I thought was funny, uh, which uh, the billionaire Leon Cooperman, uh, who is a hedge fund manager, uh, went on CNBC and uh, started crying uh, because he was mad about Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> and, uh, so. he was he was sad about the the unlikely possibility that he was going to get taxed more and it made him cry yeah uh yeah that literally <laughs> happened um so we'll play the clip now i mean i think it's kind of obvious people can not only see the um, emotion on your face but hear it in your voice when you talk about this lee why i care That's it. I had to actually pause uh, before we we started recording because I realized I had uh, prepared the wrong clip of Leon Cooperman crying. <laughs> uh, I think it's like a regular thing for him to go on CNBC and uh, and cry, um, cry about his riches, or just cry about. Yeah, I mean, he gets he gets really emotional about like being super patriotic and uh <laughs> and capitalism uh he, he gets super emotional about how rich he is <laughs> he, well he does yeah i mean he really does um yeah. oh my god so um you know and he, he like i think i don't know what's wrong with him uh but like you know, he he's a hedge fund manager he and like just in 2016 he was charged with insider trading uh which as we said before on the show, uh, that is 100% of the way that hedge funds uh, make their money is through insider trading, right? Like this is just I rich mean, people giving each other information and uh, protecting one another uh, to the detriment of everybody else. I mean, obviously it's not 100%, but it is a part of the business model. I think it's the only thing that makes it different than other securities, right? Like the the, the, the difference, like the difference between a high return hedge fund and, you know, uh, an IRA or something uh, is that the people running the hedge fund are breaking the law. Like that, I, think, that, I think that's often true. Uh, anyway, that's my theory. Uh, obviously, you know, if it was uh, provable in every case, they would all be in jail. Uh, but like, you know, like Cooperman, uh, like him crying is so disgusting to me, right? Like this, the idea that uh, Elizabeth Warren is going to tax him more uh, and I mean, I, I, like he's, I think he's crying. At, it's a little unclear, but I think he's crying at the prospect of his like children or whoever not inheriting uh, the masses of wealth that he has hoarded. Uh, so like I, you know, and, and he said he's one of these guys who said he's going to give away all of his money. And uh, and I'm sure that uh, he will uh, give away uh, some sizable portion of it. But like, you know, obviously, he's also going to put a lot into trusts for his uh, inheritors. But like, you know, I don't I don't even know what to think about that. Right? Like he just he, he he just wants to keep his money, Chad. I am. He insider traded hard for that money. Yeah, right. You know, Um, but that, you know, but Cooperman is just uh, a preface to the main story this week. And and the reason we brought up Cooperman first is because later in the same week after he broke down uh, over the notion of a wealth tax, 
uh, he announced that he would be supporting uh, Michael Bloomberg for president. Of course, uh, he did. Uh, who announced he was he was running this week, which is uh, obviously the biggest news in billionaires this week. The biggest billionaire related news. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts? I find it all very depressing. I don't even really want to talk about it. <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, you know, this is the job you uh, signed on for, man. <laughs> I guess. I mean, yeah. I mean, if I'm forced to go on record about it, I find it all very depressing. What do you want to say? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't mean, know I, what you can say. I'll tell you something that Cooperman said uh, when he uh, when he said he was supporting Bloomberg. <laughs> this is just an amazing quotation. He said, uh, "Quote." I have a world of respect for Bloomberg's accomplishments and his values. I have to sit down and understand his platform. <laughs> if the Democratic <laughs> Party was smart, they would support him. And so he had, he doesn't even know what Bloomberg's uh, platform is. He just he supports just, him because he's a billionaire and he knows he'll protect his wealth. Yeah. Um, so, right. I mean, like, you know, it, 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 like just another. On the uh, surface, it's just completely transparent. Yeah, completely transparent uh, piece of evidence that uh, the rich have class consciousness. Uh, they think of themselves as uh, a group, right? Like they have a group identity uh, and uh, they make decisions in the interests of that group. Um, and uh, yeah. that's what he's doing. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I like. I'm still not convinced that Bloomberg is going to run because like it doesn't make a lot of sense to me right like the whole reason he is going to run for president is because he's mad at bernie sanders and elizabeth warren but like if he starts running he's not gonna suck votes from them he's gonna suck votes from like joe biden right like that, that, like what well, he's gonna do I mean, is split say- the vote of the front runner which is going to hurt his stated objective of making sure that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren don't get the nominations. I, I don't really get that. I mean, I, th- I, I basically thought his overarching objective was just to b- basically he thinks he's more electable than either Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Or Biden or Mayor Pete. Wow. He thinks he I could mean, that be is, more. That's uh, diluted. Like, Give me a break. Like, nobody gives a shit about Michael Bloomberg except for billionaires. Nobody knows who he is. Like, I mean, Biden is, I mean, I like, I can't, well, I can't I mean, stand you may, Joe Biden. You may be right. But he's like one million times more electable than Michael Bloomberg. Right? Like, nobody wants a centrist right. billionaire. I, I, it's just, that's bananas. I don't know. You know, I, uh, but like, I mean, but it's, it's, it's all about bananas. the six states. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess it so. really is all about the six states. And so all, all the analysis focused on other things doesn't really matter if you're interested in who's going to win the election. You know, yeah. if you're really interested in trying to figure that out, you're trying to figure out whose candidacy is going to go farthest in these strategic zones. And I'm not convinced of anything at this point. But that's the question. I think yeah, I think that's true. I don't know. I I'm just all I'm trying to say is uh I I would not be surprised at all if Bloomberg at the last minute is like, you know what, I don't think I'm gonna do it. Um because it's just gonna be a big waste of money for him. Um but like you know, like we shouldn't 
misunderstand what this is on its face, right? Like just the, the, the obvious thing that he's doing here, which is saying, if I don't like, if, if the, if I and the people who belong to my class do not like where, uh, the, uh, the politics of the democratic party is headed, uh, we will exercise our power to make sure that that party continues to support our interests, right? Like he, it's, he's exercising veto power uh, over the electoral process, which is something that you can do when you have billions of dollars at your disposal, right? Like it, it is, it's an utterly clear example of why wealth concentration is anti-democratic, right? Like, oh, because, yeah. we- because a guy with a lot of money can step in and be like, oh, okay, well, I don't like this personally, me, one person, I don't like this. And so I'm going to spend millions of dollars to uh, change public opinion around it's these It's completely issues. insane. Our, our country is completely insane. This should not be allowed. I agree. His aunt Sally tells a story that when he was seven, she noticed he was playing outside with a truck and trailer little toy set. She walked out and said, Jerry, it looks like you're having a lot of fun with that, with that truck. And he said, one day I'm going to have a hundred of these trucks. <laughs> All right. So that's, uh, that's it. That's kind of interesting. Can you guess what this guy went on to do? Uh, Jerry Moyes, a hun- by the way, own own a hundred trucks, <laughs> even more than a hundred. He owned uh-huh. uh, far more than a hundred. I'm like seventeen thousand trucks. Um, I, big time know, truck guy. Yeah, but he's a big time truck guy. Um, yeah, just uh, that's so that that uh, clip actually is from a short film called Hubba Hubba, a tribute to Jerry Moyes, legend of the industry. Oh yeah, I think that played at Telluride. yeah um it's extremely bad and it's it's just a bunch (laughs) of i don't know if it was made like on the occasion of his retirement or whatever but like uh it's just a bunch of people like singing his praises and that's how it opens with a story about how uh even as a child he loves trucks which is like, I mean, first like seems false because no like six year old is gonna be like, I want to own a trucking company, uh, and all kids well, like a tru- trucks. They would, they'd want to be a truck driver. Yeah, all kids like trucks. Like I'm sure Ben and Jerry enjoyed ice cream when they were children, right? <laughs> like they probably also like trucks. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Like, right. Like, yeah, anyway. and dinosaurs. I yeah. want to be a dinosaur <laughs> yeah. owner. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, uh, Jerry Moyes, uh, that's who the video was about. Jerry Moyes was the founder, owner, and chairman of Swift Transportation. Uh, It was the largest long-haul trucking contractor in the United States before he sold it to Knight Transportation, which was a little smaller. And now it's this huge company called uh, Knight Swift. Uh, Okay, so it was as past tense. How long ago did Swift uh, become Swift? Oh, so relatively recently, because uh, I remember seeing Swift logos. Around. They're still they're still on the road. I mean, they haven't, yeah. you know, retired the trucks. Um, mm-hmm. 
Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, if you look up Swift truck, like there are still YouTube videos of like current day Swift trucks driving around. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that's that's his business. Uh, that's that's how he made his fortune. And uh, and we'll get we'll get back to trucking in a minute. But uh, first, I, I want to talk about some of his other interests. Because uh, if you've heard, have you heard of Jerry Moyes before? Outside of like no. seeing Swift trucks, well, yeah, I mean, no, I think most in no context haven't. have I heard of him. Even if I saw a Swift truck, I wouldn't yeah. have thought, well, "Oh, Jerry Moyes." Oh, that's a Jerry. That's a, that's a Jerry Moyes <laughs> joint. Yeah. Uh, nope, I have no no frame of reference for this person. Well, if you had heard of him, uh, it's probably because he owned the Phoenix Coyotes hockey team. Uh, they are now known as the okay. Arizona okay. Coyotes. Okay, can I just interrupt? You you say you say yeah. that occasionally on the show. Like, if you have heard of them, it's because it's one of your refrains. But no uh, one has yeah, heard of that co- hockey team. <laughs> <No> <laughs> so well, I mean, case, there's a good reason. Like, I mean, you know, I'm I I I don't claim to be a sports expert, but it does seem a little bit weird to me to move a hockey team to the middle of Arizona where. Nobody cares about hockey. No, and that's one a mi- that that must be a minor hockey. league hockey team, right? That we're talking about. Uh, not an- no, no, it's an NHL team. The Arizona what? Coyotes. Yeah. When? When? What? <laughs> I mean, uh, they just beat the Minnesota Wild uh, a few days ago. It looks like. Let's start this whole thing over. <laughs> you just do no, 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 no. We don't need to start <laughs> over. I hadn't heard of the Arizona Coyotes. I mean, if you're not a hockey fan, I mean, I, and they're relatively new. I think he he moved it there in like the early 2000s. Uh, That's it was not that new. Team. That's 20 years old. Yeah, I, I mean, just, you don't have to I feel just thought, like embarrassed I, for not. I'm totally embarrassed. I'm, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I am. I would be. I'd be willing to bet a good proportion of people who live in Arizona also haven't heard of it because uh, the team went bankrupt after he bought it, and nobody went to the games. Uh, they couldn't sell any tickets, or they couldn't sell enough tickets to make money. So, like, they were losing fifty million dollars a year. Uh, the team was was going bankrupt, and so the <laughs> NHL started pumping money into it, and then it, it ju- they just couldn't rescue it, and uh, they declared bankruptcy in two thousand and nine. And that year, they lost, I think, like fifty four million, and the previous year they lost fifty five million. Mm-hmm. Like uh, uh, over the over like the years uh, between when he moved it to Arizona and when it went bankrupt, uh, they lost hundreds of millions of dollars. Man, I would say that that's like a super obvious result of moving a hockey team to Arizona, but I'm from North Carolina and the Carolina Hurricanes seem to have done pretty well. Uh, You know, there there are particularities, but like, you know, I mean, I like I said, I lived in Arizona. There are a lot of people in Arizona, probably the majority of them, who have never seen snow in their life, right? Like, <laughs> ice only exists inside of freezers, right? It, it's yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't. You know, yeah. I don't know. It, it was a vanity project, I'm sure. Like, you know, so maybe he wasn't really that concerned. With, I don't know. I guess he thought he could make money on it because he ended up having to declare, declare bankruptcy. And then he got sued by the NHL and it was a big mess. And then it sort of went on for a decade. Uh, Wayne Gretzky was the the coach actually for a while. And Dude, I... <laughs> one of the I funny cannot... parts though is uh, Wayne Gretzky got cheated out of millions of dollars in, in salary, uh, apparently. Really? Yeah, in the bankruptcy how, thing. How like, could... So, I mean, there's so many... 
things that I'm embarrassed by. But to be making fun of a NHL franchise for the fact that no one's ever heard of it. And then <laughs> Wayne Gretzky is the coach. <laughs> I know. That's Maybe bad. it's one of the, what is that? Uh, what's that like theory? Like the Berenstain Bears universe theory where like, <laughs> like the Arizona Coyotes were, you know, they're part of like the alternate timeline and only some people remember it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, so he, he fucked up big time there. Uh, there's one other YouTube video that I want to play a clip from. Uh, that features Jerry Moyes, uh, and the video is called uh, "Big Dog," and it's about Big his dog. boat uh, that is that's named the Big Dog. Uh, so let me let me play it. He did a really interesting right. thing uh, with his boat. Of course, you can't be at the marina without seeing Jerry's huge houseboat. It's called the Big Dog. The Big Dog is the only boat on the lake that's 24 foot wide. Uh, we started building it when they put the 22 foot rule in, and we're kind of grandfathered. But it's, uh, it's believe it or not, it's 15 years old, and we actually just redid it. And uh, well, we've had a lot of fun on it, and it's had a lot of use. And uh, so it's really a fun boat. He took us inside. So. <laughs> I don't know if you can put together what he did there. <laughs> so uh, Lake Powell is this like massive uh, man-made reservoir. Uh, it's actually sometimes, depending on the time of year, uh, holds more water than Lake Mead. It's the second largest uh, man-made reservoir in the United States. Uh, it's a big okay. resort. He owns a place called Antelope Point Marina that's part of Lake Powell. And uh, so when he heard that Lake Powell was instituting a rule that boats could only be 22 feet wide. <laughs> he, he got in there hurried, and built his 24. Yes. He, he hurried up and built a 24 foot wide boat so that he would in perpetuity have the largest boat on, you know, who, you know, you know who this reminds me of huh? Ross Perot jr. Yeah. <laughs> Getting yeah. up there in the helicopter right before. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's that kind of move, right? Like it's, it's the, like perfect it's the quintessence of billionaire brain disease it's like um it's not possible for this guy to just have a boat he has to scheme so that he has the biggest boat <laughs> in the place that he goes to otherwise it's not possible for him to enjoy himself right? it's not like, worth having a boat yeah yeah why why would i even have a boat if it's not the biggest boat it's actually kind of pitiable it's actually uh, somewhat sad to to like imagine living in that mind space and it's amazing too that he has to talk about it he has to let us yeah. know well well the special thing about the big dog is that it's a <laughs> it's a 24 foot wide boat yeah yeah anyway uh not not a particularly big uh political donor until uh, Trump ran for president in 2016. He gave one hundred and fifty five thousand uh, dollars mainly to Trump, one hundred thousand dollars to the Trump Victory Fund, uh, which was about triple the Trump his previous Victory contribution Fund? record. I think it was a pack. I, yeah, I don't know. It wasn't after he won. It wasn't just for his victory. Party. No, it wasn't the it wasn't the <laughs> inauguration thing. Uh, no, it, it was, was trying like, to achieve victory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was in hopes of victory. Um and you might think, you know, cuz Trump has this whole like trucking thing. Do you remember when he got in the big rig and he made that like goofy face like he was driving it? Uh it's pretty hilarious. I guess I forgot that. It, look it up. Uh anyway, yeah. you might think that it was some sort of lobbying deal like Moyes wanted something for his trucking company, so he's being nice to Trump. 
Uh, no, it, his retirement was already announced and he was in the process of selling it off tonight. Uh, so it was just because he liked Trump a lot. So one one last thing before we get into talking about trunking. Um, uh, uh, so before he bought a sports team and a giant boat, uh, he'd already made a name for himself because he made it a habit to take out personal loans against his shares in his publicly traded company. Uh, and I wanted to read a quote from a- an article that was published by the Teamsters on their website about Moyes. Uh, quote, Moyes and his family have borrowed millions of dollars for personal reasons. Moyes pledged two thirds of his stock in Swift as collateral for these loans. Those equities amounted to 25% of the total outstanding shares of Swift transportation. The Securities and Exchange Commission warned that the company that Moyes pledge uh, that Moyes pledge of the stock is a material risk to investors. The SEC also cautioned that the stock could tank if Moyes had to sell it. And then there's Moyes' risk of being sued for a lot. Swift's 2012 annual report states that Moyes gave personal guarantees to companies that lent money to his businesses and real estate interests. But in some cases, those loans are in default and are being restructured and or settled. He's already been sued by his own brother, uh, where he settled for $2.6 million, uh, his own children because he borrowed $110 million from their trust, and the National Hockey League for breach of contract, aiding and abetting breach of fiduciary duty, uh, rising out of the bankruptcy, and trying to sell the Coyotes without league consent. <laughs> uh, and he also had to pay $1.5 million to settle an insider trading charge by the SEC. <laughs> so... Um, you know, not exactly uh, an ethical businessman in a lot of ways. Uh, so, you know, like, wh- let's put the pieces together. Garbage sports team, obnoxious boat, unethical and illegal finances that serve only his own greed. Uh, regular criminal billionaire shit. Like, this, that's pretty much par for the course uh, in terms of billionaires that we covered. Like, the, those are some pretty standard that's like standard operating procedure. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but but like I said, I wanted to talk, uh, the main sort of subject today is uh, trucking, because that, that's uh, what he was mostly involved with. Um, um, you know, there so are when a did, lot when of- did he when did he get involved in the industry? He got involved in the industry in the 1960s, and he loves to tell the story about how he started out with only a single truck uh, and, uh, and built it up into, uh, you know, an empire. Um, did he drive the truck himself? I don't know. Probably, I guess. I don't know. There are uh, there's only a few big trucking companies. Can you name any of the other ones? Like maybe you've seen them on the road. Um, yeah, I can. Uh, JB Hunt. Yeah, that's the one that comes to my mind too. <laughs> they have such a like recognizable and memorable logo. JB Hunt. I think they're second biggest. Um, that's really all I wanted you to say. There's like Knight Swift and JB Hunt. Those are the biggest ones. I don't know what, like if you would have asked me to name a trucking company, all I could say was JB Hunt. I never would have gotten Knight or Swift. Um, but among those big dogs in the industry, uh, Swift actually has the worst reputation, um, uh, among truckers, especially. Uh, and in fact, there's an entire genre of YouTube videos called Swift fails. Uh, and, uh, and, and they're very funny. They're, they're actually really hilarious, but they're all, there's also a dimension, uh, that is very sad about them. So, uh, you don't have any queued up, do you? I do. I have one more clip here. Uh, this is a, a, I put together a little bit of a montage. It's actually only two clips uh, called Swift Fails. Here we go. Here we are, Swift back at it again, looking at my, uh, log book. 
and uh, all of a sudden I hear crunch, and there you go. Not watching his fucking trailer, that's what it stands for. Swing wide, it's a fucking trailer. Swift. <laughs> Thank you, Swift. Come on there, Swift. Don't give me a show. Got your fairing all messed up. Surprise, surprise, Swift. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Thinking about it. Still thinking about it. He's still thinking about it. No, no, no. No. Let's go forward a little bit more. Uh, no, maybe now. Maybe now. Maybe we can put it in reverse here. So there are like a million clips of people just like watching swift trucks drive really badly and either making fun of them or screaming at them okay uh there's actually even a lot of videos of live accidents taking place (laughs) um and it's and the thing is like it's not just a stereotype uh it's actually borne out by the numbers uh swift drivers do tend to have many more accidents per mile than drivers for other companies so they just don't have good training, basically. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, it you know, it, it's uh, and the reason that they don't have good training is it, this is an industry wide problem. And it has to do with the labor history of trucking in the U.S. and the kind of predatory practices that big trucking companies, uh, especially Swift, use to turn a profit. Uh, I thought I'd give you a couple of quick stats about how big trucking is, because because I didn't really uh, realize uh, how large it is. So. It's big. I'll tell you right yeah. now, trucking is big. It's very big. Uh, more than 3.5 million people work as truck drivers. Um, uh, more than 90% of them are men. Uh, I wonder how many of them vote for Trump. A lot. Um, uh, there are more truckers than nurses. Less truckers than people who work in retail. So it's sort of between More nurses. truckers than nurses. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. According to the uh, uh, sociologist of trucking, Steve Vaselli, uh, and I, I drew a lot from his work in, in what follows, uh, he says, on any given day, the U.S. economy depends on the movement of more than 54 million tons of freight and more uh, worth more than $48 billion. That's about 350 pounds of freight for every American every day, right? So that's what's inside trucks uh, on the highways. Um, wow. Yeah, that's a lot, right? 350 pounds per person per day. Um, So it's huge in terms of the number of people it employs uh, and in terms of its centrality to the economy. uh, Yet, truck drivers experience absolutely horrible working conditions for very little pay. Uh, And why this is, is mainly because of industry deregulation that began in the 1970s. In the, in the early 1980s, just before he left office, Jimmy Carter actually deregulated the trucking industry with a Motor Carrier Act of 1980. We, tend to, uh, we talked about deregulation, in fact, a little bit last week. We tend to associate it with Reagan, but it was actually very much a part of the Democratic platform uh, in the 70s. I'll, I'll read a little quote. Uh, when Carter signed, and, and like, tell me that this does not sound like the, the deregulatory rhetoric that you hear from like Paul Ryan and stuff today, right? Uh, So when he signed the act, Carter said, uh, this is historic legislation. It will remove 45 years of excessive and inflationary government restrictions and red tape. It will have a powerful anti-inflationary effect, reducing consumer costs by as much as $8 billion a year. And by ending wasteful practices, it will conserve annually hundreds of millions of gallons of precious fuel. All the citizens of our nation will benefit from this legislation. 
Consumers will benefit because almost every product we purchase has been shipped by truck and outmoded regulations have inflated the prices that each one of us must pay. The shippers who use trucking will benefit as new service and price options appear. Labor will benefit from increased job opportunities. And the trucking industry itself will benefit from greater flexibility and new opportunities for innovation. Uh, so uh, none of those things happened. None of those things turned out the way that Carter predicted. Uh, and in fact, what deregulation led to was the complete de-unionization of the trucking labor force. None of the truckers who work for any of the big trucking companies are a member of, of a union. Hmm. And it's kind of funny, right? Because like when we think of labor history in the United States. I mean, we often, the first, one of the first things that comes to mind is the Teamsters, right? Like, which is a, a trucking union, right? And I mean, that's what the name means. And that's what their logo is. It's like horses drawing a, you know, cart, right? Like deregulation uh, throughout the 1980s um, dramatically reduced uh, 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 union participation uh, in the trucking industry. Hmm. It, like until the 1980s, it was a great job. They were like truckers were kind of the bedrock of the American middle class. Um, but like the reason that the trucking was a really good uh, living to to make was because of collective bargaining power and government regulations that prevented hyper competitive market practices like we have today. Uh, and, and the government regulations uh, put up barriers to entry so that like it was hard to start a trucking business. Uh, mm -hmm. And they also ensured uh, pay equity uh, across the industry. But like now, uh, in the era of deregulation, anybody can start a trucking company. And most of them, like over 90% of trucking companies operate less than six trucks, fewer than six trucks. Um, huh. uh, so like, uh, there are a few big ones, but there are like tens of thousands of tiny ones. Why did the government deregulate the industry? Well, uh, they were encouraged by a bunch of think tanks like the American Enterprise Institute and the Brookings Institution, who created uh, this pseudo-academic intellectual complex that's still going on today uh, that is fixated on undermining American labor in the interest of the capitalist class, uh, by whom they are still funded uh, and were funded at that time. And they made the same dumb arguments that like Paul Ryan makes today, right? Like, Union, union labor, you know, formerly, I guess he retired, right? Like unions uh, inflate wages. And so people, if you want cheaper goods, uh, you got to get rid of the unions. Uh, of course, you know, uh, the problem with that is that then that drives down wages across the economy and nobody's making any money, but the prices of stuff still go up, right? And mm -hmm. as anybody who's been alive in the last like 40 years knows, Things keep getting more expensive, but nobody's getting paid anymore. Right? Like that, that dismantling. Except a few people. Well, exactly, right? Like dismantling unions and deregulating markets has only had one impact, and that is that wealth has become concentrated in the hands of a very few people while everybody else became, became poorer, right? Um, and the, like, there's just no better it's example so of this. It's so simple and so obvious. It seems ridiculous that we have to do this show. Does it not? It is. Uh, yeah, it is. It is ridiculous. Anyway, that's it in broad strokes. Uh, deregulation killed unions and made trucking into a shitty job. But, the, you know, the last thing I have is like, OK, like, uh, you know, you can understand that in an abstract way. But like, how does it work for a trucker on the ground? Like, what are the predatory practices? How is it shitty? I, I guess I'll start mm -hmm. by asking you a question. 
What would you say mm-hmm. a normal turnover rate for, um, uh, like, I don't know, a, a, a large industry like, say, retail uh, or, hmm. um, or auto workers uh, would be? Like, how many people, like, what percentage, I guess, of people do you think leave uh, on, uh, per year? Okay. I would have to say more than 50%. You think more than well, you're talking about a broad set of industries. I guess so. Somehow. It's a it's a flawed yeah. question. Right? Like it's a flawed <laughs> question. Well, what the point that I want to get to is that nobody comes close to the trucking industry. The okay. trucking industry average is in excess of 100 percent turnover each year. <laughs> Which means explain that to me, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like it kind of threw me for a loop at first, right? It doesn't mean that everybody leaves every year. It means that the industry constantly churns through tons of people who stay for less than a year, and that's part of their business model. It's not because uh, people don't want to work hard or whatever, right? Like the the here's like it's a scam. It's literally a scam, and here's how it works. So Swift will set up its own CDL, uh, CDL's commercial driver's license. It'll set up its own CDL schools, and it also contract with other schools to sell CDL training for four thousand dollars. So you put up four thousand dollars, and you get so-called training that lasts three weeks. If you work for the company for twenty-six consecutive months, they reimburse you for the training, but almost nobody stays that long. So you pay four thousand dollars. And get the absolute minimum training required by law such that nobody else will hire you except these big companies. And then Mm -hmm. they send you out where working conditions are so awful and you make like so little money that you end up quitting before you get out of debt peonage to the company. Uh, Wow. So here's how. uh, So how much I really want to know how much they make. Well, that's that. These are the stats that I'm going to read right now. So this is from Steve Vaselli's book uh, uh, where. uh, on the sociology of trucking where he actually became a trucker for six months. And, uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting book. Um, so he writes, uh, low carrier rates are the fruit of low wages and bad working conditions for drivers. The typical general freight driver lives out of a truck and is away from home for almost two weeks at a time. Though many of them put in hours equivalent to two full-time jobs or more, a new driver might earn $35,000 annually while the average driver might earn around 45000 And so the people working for Swift- That's pretty shitty. New drivers. If we count the total time they're required to be on the road, many of these drivers are earning less than minimum wage. The combination mm. of low wages and bad working conditions results in an extraordinarily high turnover, typically averaging over 100% a year at large companies. Uh, and he goes into here, uh, uh, this is like uh, what sociologists do. He makes up an alias for the company. I'm pretty sure he's talking about Swift because in an article he wrote for The Atlantic, he quoted how much he paid for training. And it was the, like basically the same as how much people pay for training at Swift. Maybe it's a more, hmm. I don't know. Like it's either Swift or one of the other two companies. It's probably Swift. Uh, Stephen Burks and his colleagues looked at retention rates for more than 5,000 drivers hired by uh, federal, that's his alias, uh, for Swift, uh, from September 2001 to the end of March 2005. 92% of the drivers hired were inexperienced, that is, new to the industry. Uh, within about 10 weeks of being hired, 
25% of the drivers had left the company. Half of those hired were gone by 29 weeks. The author suggests that these turnover rates are consistent with other industry data, a fact which indicates several hundred thousand people train for and try out this job each year, only to leave it within a few months, probably having incurred debt for the training that most have little hope of recovering. Wow. So, yeah. So, like, basically, you go into debt to train to do this job. Uh, and before you can make enough money to pay that debt off, uh, you quit because it sucks so bad. Um, and in terms of like Swift's place in the industry, they paid the lowest. Uh, and they did a whole bunch of other really shady stuff to nickel and dime drivers wherever they could. For instance, like the training is extremely short and basically limited to how to operate the truck. And uh, from like uh, basically exposés that former drivers were writing in forums online, I read they are not instructed in how to claim wages for any things that are supposed to be company related expenses like like layovers or load cancellations or uh, unintended like unpredicted detentions. Hmm. Instead, the company gives them a CD-ROM and tells them to study it. It's <laughs> just like here's a CD-ROM of all of the a rules. A CD-ROM? Yeah. How old was yeah. this like, expose? A couple of years ago. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> yeah. Not, it was like 2016 or something like that. Um still that's and so, like, insane. they're all new. Like, they've been thrown into this thing. They've been driving a truck for like a couple of weeks, and you know, and like, and they're not given any sort of uh, uh, instruction on how to maximize their capacity to make money, right? Like, it's sort of like these, you know, hidden fees and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so, like, the, part of their business model is a hundred percent turnover because. Uh, it makes them money and it's cheaper, right? Like, uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, truckers work 70 to 80 hour weeks for less than a minimum wage. Uh, and, and the thing is like, they're not the only ones paying the price, right? Like that there's also a safety cost. And that we talked about earlier, uh, that we are all burdened by because the roads are filled with undertrained and overworked drivers. Uh, all while fucking Jerry Moyes becomes a billionaire and spends his time trying to figure out if he should move a sports team to Arizona or uh, buy the biggest boat on his stupid fucking lake. It's pretty wild. Uh, So now is the time, uh, as we do for every segment, whenever we rate each billionaire on a 1 to 10 scale on our David Koch Memorial Asset Liquidation Index to uh, assign a number to how urgent it is to expropriate the wealth of that particular billionaire and redistribute it uh, to deprive them of their power and, uh, uh, and, and render them insignificant, I guess. This guy is bad. You know, and what he's doing is bad. And so on that level, I would say eight, you know, but to put him within two of the Koch brothers or Cargill. I know. It's kind of hard. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think we've got to go. We kind of got to go seven. If we're we're basically like a hundred percent agree. Yeah. I can't go eight. uh, But also it's like he's too much of a jerk to not get above a five right like i, I think i think oh, i mean he's got it's at least a seven yeah. it's just like i i kind of want to give him more but there's just not that much room <laughs> at the upper end of the he's scale. just not that important in the end he's really yeah. not a big dog uh right he is he is actually kind of a little dog and uh um, yeah 
And so he, sorry, Jerry, you can't, you can't get into that upper echelon of like the Koch brothers <laughs> with what you have going on. It's just not enough. That's why you got your boat on a little lake and not in the ocean with the big dog yachts. Uh, so go get yourself a yacht, Jerry. We'll, we'll rate you again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe. So uh, who is your billionaire for this week? All right. My billionaire this week is Gary Rollins, who is the CEO of Rollins, Inc., the United States' largest pest control company. It's the world, really? Its most well-known subsidiary is Orkin, which everyone has heard of. Oh, wow. So Orkin's... Just part. So of this is the Orkin family. And, okay. Yeah, it's a what pest is, empire. I don't mean to interrupt. I know you're just getting started, but is Orkin a name of a person? Like, what is? What does it mean? <laughs> okay, I'm going to flash forward here in my notes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to. So Orkin, as a company, has been around since 1901. Founded by a guy named Otto Orkin, who was often referred to as Otto the Rat Man. <laughs> um, Whoa. So, yeah. Otto so, the Rat Man. So the the Rollins family originally purchased Orkin in 1964 in what was apparently the first leveraged buyout in United States history. So that's a Whoa, interesting footnote, maybe. That is, yeah. Orville Wayne Rollins and his brother John started the the business that is Rollins Inc. today back in 1948. And it was originally a broadcasting company. And they ultimately got into pest control, and that became the bread and butter of the industry for most of the rest of the 20th century. Um, left turn. I mean, this is like, it's such a radical departure from broadcasting to pest control. <laughs> like, just kind of wondering what that board meeting I mean, but was this like. Is, you know? <laughs> but this is business, It's but it, it doesn't matter. That's what I'm learning yeah. doing the show. You yeah. know, it yeah, doesn't yeah. matter what it is. It's just money, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're covering Gary Rollins today. Orville Wayne Rollins is Gary's dad. And I'm going to spend a couple of minutes talking about the family because there's some interesting things happening with the family that, <laughs> that date back to the Orville and John generation. So Gary has been married twice and he and his first wife had four kids. For the last eight years, those four kids and their mom have been engaged in a bitter legal battle with Gary and his brother, Randall, over trust fund disbursements. Uh-oh. This has gotten a lot of headlines. And as you might expect, the whole situation is a little bit complicated. But as I understand <laughs> it, the granddad, Orville, or as he's known as Wayne, actually. Uh, Wayne set up these <laughs> trusts, guaranteeing payouts to grandchildren 
and great grandchildren. So like he was like doing some hardcore multi-generational estate planning, Mm -hmm. just wanting to make sure that everyone in his germline for the foreseeable (laughs) future was super rich. And he put his son, Gary, in charge of these trusts when he died in 1991. So, okay, most of the children are young or young adults during this period. It doesn't seem like there's any dramatic developments over the course of the 90s. There there are some sizable disbursements that get made to grandchildren uh, on their 21st birthdays and Mm -hmm. uh, probably other times too. Then in the year 2000, Gary and his brother Randall decided to set up new requirements for trust payout (laughs) eligibility. And they created a plan that's called the Rollins Family Entity Distribution Program. (laughs) And so um, the language of this program states that the grandkids needed to be involved in, quote, meaningful pursuits Uh, if they were going to get their hands on the money. What is the point of being rich? If you have to still do a meaningful pursuit. (laughs) Well, I mean, so according to the Forbes article that I'm pulling from here that outlines the history of the family feud, meaningful pursuits could mean almost anything. I mean, it's like being in school, having any sort of job, anything but just like pure idleness. Uh, (laughs) This sounds like like, an, this sounds like some anti-black sheep stuff, right? Like there was one or two. Yeah. Yeah. Except that it seems like this is a family that was kind of filled with black sheep, you know, and they were kind of like, oh, everyone is idle. <laughs> you know, why are we, I mean, that's, why that, are we like, paying for their, uh, you know, this is really interesting to me because like, this is the, you know, like, so you have this guy who's thinking about his great grandchildren's inheritance uh, of the fortune that he has amassed. and. And it seems like there's a kind of legacy of not wanting those people to devolve into, you know, the kind of stereotype of of aristocrats, right? Like these kind of absolutely like gray yeah. puddles of like uh, Lovecraftian, you know, inbreeding and, and and that kind of thing, right? Like the just like nothingness, right? Um, mm-hmm. And but they do. It's like there's like this inevitable gravitational force that like that turns them into these uh that's exactly right well i mean this is it's just like you know it's greek tragedy you know it's yeah it's, you can't it's, escape something that's deep yeah yeah, yeah. It, this is this is the deal <laughs> this rollins family entity distribution program is probably unnerving the new generations but nothing comes to a head until a decade later when Gary and his brother Randall decide to institute another level of disbursement management. And they set up this this monitoring program that basically gives them the right to surveil the kids with private investigators and drug tests and medical record reviews before (laughs) approving any cash disbursements. (laughs) So... They basically wanted full <laughs> access and dossiers on all of the kids. And this is basically when shit in, hit the fan for the entire family. 
and oh, it's a, becomes this really public thing. Um, <laughs> G- Gary's kids, all four of his kids, sue him. His first wife <laughs> files for divorce. Um, and then there's a subplot here. I'm not going to talk about all of of Gary's kids or Randall and Randall's family, but I'm going to talk a little bit for a second about Gary's son Glenn, <laughs> who. It was one of the four sons that sues his dad, who graduates from Princeton in the late 80s and had actually served as chief operating officer of Orkin in the mid-aughts. So he definitely like cleared the the very, very low bar of meaningful pursuit. Yeah. You know, he was gonna get he was gonna get the payouts, but things in the family had gotten toxic enough and this new uh, initiative to monitor everybody got like scary enough for him where he got on board with his side of the family's lawsuit and at, at exactly that time when his dad's life was going into meltdown his life was going into like a parallel meltdown so him and his <laughs> this is Glenn Gary's son he and his wife Danielle had been very like visible players in the Atlanta socialite scene. Mm. They had this like five acre estate in Buckhead that was once featured in town and country magazine. Glenn was high up in Orkin. He was the only member of his generation of the family to be working for the company. And they had a ton of money. Danielle, I mean, this gives you a, a, you know, town and country is like one signpost. Another is that, Danielle was writing a coffee table book about entertaining. And then finally, if that weren't enough to kind of really offer a precise characterization of this family at the time, their kids are named Carlisle, Preston, uh, and Emerson. No. So this is, this is, this is, this is no. you know, they're having lots of fancy parties. This is their whole deal. But so, um, <laughs> that is way too much. So, so this monitoring program gets instituted and they, uh, the <laughs> siblings and the mom get together and start to move forward on this lawsuit. Gary and the mom get divorced. And then around this time, like 2012 ish, it comes out that Glenn, Gary's son has been sleeping with dozens of prostitutes. Oh no. And his his marriage explodes in 2013. That's going to really hurt uh, his rating on the, uh, do on the, like, uh, do you deserve to receive this inheritance scale? (laughs) Well, I mean, you can understand (laughs) why the private investigator concept was unnerving to Glenn. Wait a second. <laughs> During this yeah, time. yeah, yeah. Did they? Yeah. Well, okay. So clarify this for me. Did the people who were being surveilled know that they were being surveilled? Like for the inheritance? They like, knew they were going to be surveilled. So here's Glenn uh, in 2010. His main deal is like sleeping with prostitutes. <laughs> and <laughs> then like his, his dad fav- is like, it's his order. favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it's his favorite thing to do. And, and his, <laughs> his dad says, in order to get money now, I'm going to have to have a private investigator follow you, whatever it is that you're doing. And he (laughs) is uneasy with 
that idea, okay. given his lifestyle choices. I'm I'm going to send you a picture here, Chad. I just sent you a picture on the. I just sent you a photograph on text message. I just want you to tell me if you're getting a sex addiction vibe here from this oh, guy. Oh fuck! That is one. Yeah. One sex addicted dude. So he's blonde. And I think that that, oh, I know what it is. It's that his shirt. It's those clasps. Yeah. yeah it's the shirt. His yeah. shirt is. What do you call that? Well, it's I, like a I don't Chinese think, shirt. Yeah. Or something? I don't think. No, no, no. This is some sort of like weird style that must have been popular in like the mid 2000s or something. That is, it is clearly like a business shirt, but uh, buttons are too pedestrian a technology for him so he has to have some sort of fancy it's, thing it's but asian like, it's like it's asian, asian inspired, inspired class, class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 like yeah real sex addict hours uh yeah yeah so anyway um <laughs> he goes on uh after after in the in the aftermath of his his exploded marriage he attends the same sexual rehabilitation center that Tiger Woods attended. Um, Gross. And, and, and after doing that, he goes on to marry his sister's nanny. What? <laughs> Glenn. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, wow. So that's the end of the Glenn subplot. Let's, let's talk a little bit about pest control. Uh, it took me about two seconds of Googling Orkin to realize that there are some like super grisly skeletons <laughs> in Gary Rollins's closet <laughs> or in the closet of this business. So here's a selection of Orkin related headlines spanning a couple of decades uh, that kind of give you a flavor. Orkin held responsible for two fumigation deaths, a household insecticide becomes a horror story. <laughs> so I'm going to read the first two paragraphs of this, this headline, which is from the Baltimore Sun. Before fleeing their home in the belief it was killing them, <laughs> before yeah, the yeah, lawyers, yeah. the expert witnesses, the dead dog, and oh. the bankruptcy, <laughs> Bill and Laurie Anger had just one question. Why is this happening? <laughs> Laurie Anger's numbed brain offered no help. Oh, no. <laughs> Nor could anyone else explain why in those spring days in 1994, her pounding skull forbade sleep or why her lungs pumped out fluids oh. or why when she walked down her hallway, she careened off the walls as if she were a drunk on a rolling ship. Okay. So there are like plenty of these Whoa. stories out there. And they're all horrifying. That's intense. Uh, but then there's another set of headlines <laughs> that are also horrible in a totally different way. And so here's a taste of what these other bad headlines uh, look like. Biloxi couple awarded $1.9 million over termite contract with Orkin. Hell yeah. Former Orkin pest control employee collects $5 million in a whistleblower lawsuit. Orkin sanctioned $1 million for systematic scheme to defraud its customers, <laughs> uh, which I think really sums up yeah. the essence. Of, 
Well, there was actually a cap on how much they were allowed uh, to be fined, which I'm sure was part of the business model at some level. But I'm not sure how interesting the details of all of these things are. But basically, Orkin has been systematically defrauding customers over many years in a variety of contexts. And the super simplified version is that the company on myriad occasions uh, has been caught charging for services that it just was not delivering and didn't intend to deliver. And so if you take those two groups of headlines together, you can basically yeah. <laughs> infer that the, 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 the takeaway is that there are two important elements that are at the core of Orkin's business model. On the one hand, poison, and on the other hand, fraud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a company that's based on poison and fraud. Speaking of poison, it's, it's worth noting, too, that the Rollins family fortune increased dramatically in, in, in recent years because they also own an oil and gas company, which has profited enormously from fracking over the last couple of decades. And the profits generated from fracking have contributed in some ways to the drama surrounding the family lawsuits that I was describing earlier. But um, I think a, a, a rather large percentage of Gary and Randall's wealth has been accrued in the aftermath of these fracking investments. So I'm not going to talk very much about that, but I wanted to let listeners know that that was a part of their business model. I wanted to offer a final word or, or a few thoughts on insects and our relationship to them. Why do you think humans hate insects so much? I don't hate insects, man. I uh, I hate certain ones. Well, okay. We all have our individual relationships with Are you going to jump into Jakob but, von Oikshill and uh, the Umwelt and the Innenwelt? Uh, are we going to get like... No, if you want, if you want to, if you want to jump into that, we can. Hell yeah, I do. do you wanna... have some ideas? You can. Well, no, I jump mean, in. Just what, I mean, it's just, I asked it, you a question. It's just I mean, one of my favorite subjects to talk about. Explain which is... it to our listeners in in ways that will make sense. Ah, okay. So there was this. Um, you know, I believe he was German, even though his name is not German. I actually don't know. Um, Jakob von Oixhill. It's like U E X H I L L, something like that. Uh, he wrote this famous essay on uh, the. Uh, the perceptual world of a tick. Uh, and he was the person hmm. who came up with the idea of Innenwelt and uh, Umwelt, uh, which means sort of like um, uh, inner world and external world, right? Uh, respectively. Hmm. And uh, the, the thing that the tick for him was a, was a kind of like uh, instructive example of how radically different uh, uh, perception can be for different species. So like a tick can't right, sense, yeah. a tick can't see, uh, can't hear, you know, a, a tick can kind of like sense sunlight and uh, uh, from heat, right? Like it has this kind of infrared sensor and that makes the tick crawl to the top of a plant just sort of automatically, yeah. right? It's like a trigger. Uh, that forces the tick to crawl to the top of a plant. And then when it senses uh, maybe uric acid, some sort of acid that like 
animals make as a scent, then the, the tick is triggered again to drop off of the plant. And the entire world, the entire perceptual world of a tick is just sensing these two things, like moving up and 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 then responding in these motions, like moving up and, and dropping. In a weird way, I, I, I just feel like this idea strikes to the core of what the podcast is all about. Because when I use the term infrastructure, that's what I'm using. That's what Whoa. I'm describing in my mind. That's so, you know, yes. it's like, it's like all the very elemental ways that our bodies and minds are constrained by our, our, our bodily and material conditions. Whoa. That, and, I mean, that's very deep. You know, and I think that that is, I, I never really thought of that before, but that seems exactly correct to me. Like, um, like the, the thing that is interesting to talk about with infrastructure is that um, uh, we can kind of imagine ourselves in the way that Jakob von Eichshill, uh imagined the tick, right? Like, is what are the yeah, kind of exactly what right. are the kind yeah. of external forces that act on us to trigger um, uh, right. uh, our daily operations, right? Um, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And and this like segues into my next point. I think so. You know, I think it's fair to say because the pest industry is thriving, and we all know there's a fear of bugs that exists in the world. It's a fraught relationship. It's a fraught relationship. And I didn't go deep. I, I, I'm curious about the subject. So maybe when I have more time, I'll read more. But the little bit I read on the subject, the conclusions that I was led to arrive at are, are basically that our fear of insects is basically a learned fear. Hmm. Our fear of ro roaches, for example, is like totally disproportionate to the risks right, they pose right, right. to human yeah. health. They, I mean, roaches do carry allergens and bacteria, but there's not oh, very much yeah, evidence like, that links them really, to, what are they to gonna do serious to you, right? disease outbreaks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't want to say that there's no rational reason for pest control, because obviously there, there are good reasons to control pests. Termites are obviously damaging to your home. Nobody wants bats in their house. I get all that. But I also think that there's an element of irrational conditioning when it comes to our aversion to bugs. And I, you know, when you apply a little pressure to this way of thinking, it seems to me that like this is perhaps a specific example of a much larger problem that is. I think maybe central to what it means to be human living in modern industrialized society. And, and the larger problem is this, like capitalism has in so many different ways created a set of infrastructural conditions that all but requires us to poison ourselves and the world around us, <laughs> whether it's the burning fossil fuels or synthesizing chemicals, or even like simply cutting down trees Capitalism, in some sense, requires us to poison ourselves. Capitalism runs on poison. Whoa! And we were talking. We were talking last episode about primitive accumulation. Pest control is another sort of perverse example of this. How do we make cockroaches productive by cultivating a fear of them so that people are willing to pay <laughs> money to kill them? Oh my god, <laughs> that is a hundred percent correct. You're, uh, yeah, that is yeah. that is a powerful argument. Um, 
I think we're at the point where you have to do the liquidation index. And I mean, I'm caught in the same bind as we sometimes are caught in, which is like, I think these people are horrible. Yeah. Do they have the reach to, to is... rate them super high? I, w- I want to rate them eight because of the poison factor. Mm. I want to give them an eight. But you didn't. But I don't know what you think. I mean, you didn't go too deep into the how they are directly hurting consumers area. You focus more on their individual perversity. And, mm-hmm. and that's messed up. But, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't other stuff that I just didn't have time to go into. <laughs> well, okay. But I, but I don't have access to that. I don't know. You know so yeah. I would say like, in terms of the like the, the whole like the thing that sticks out to me the whole like surveillance and um and just like vicious infighting uh, um yeah it, it's like that is a signal about something else but in itself it's like uh, you know like uh I think we're at another 7 I think this is pretty similar to your last I think guy. I could even I could even go a, a, a well I don't uh, no yeah. man, you don't know what you're you don't know what you're talking about. Fumigation deaths, yeah, like systematic right. schemes to defraud customers, okay. like people. We did kind like, of rush like, through like that, but that is very, per- very bad. Um, okay, yeah, it's Seven. really. Let's I mean, it, yeah. it's a poison. It's a poison business. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, when you put it that way, yeah, I guess seven at least. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. I I could compromise. Sometimes we do point five. Do you want to do seven point five? Sometimes we do. Kinda. Right, let's do seven point five. All right. That sounds good. Okay, so we've reached the time where we need to uh, pick our billionaires for next episode. Yeah. And listeners of the show will know that we have a mechanism for doing that. this. We have a, <laughs> what, what do we call it? You, you got on me for calling it a generator. Yeah, it's a, it's a selector. Uh, random billionaire selector. Yes. Um, so we select by spinning the roulette wheel, which we're going to do. Right this very moment. And the first one is number 547 on our list, Jeff Green. Actually, very weird. Only one above Jerry Moyes. Uh, uh, Jerry Moyes was number 548. (laughs) Today we're doing Jeff Jeff Green. Uh, Jeff Green. Okay. What's his deal? Uh, is digital advertising. He is chairman of the Trade Desk, an advertising tech firm. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what that's about. Um, that doesn't sound terribly interesting, but you never know. Well, you know, there is a lot of stuff that's going on with digital advertising that's very interesting. Um, Maybe, yeah. Okay. All right. Who's next? Who is next? Let me run that selector back. John Menard Jr., number 40, the 40, 40th richest person in the United States. M- Menards. Menards. Save big money at Menards. This- oh, wow. <laughs> wow. 
I could just start that episode right now. <laughs> I have some things to say. All right, you can have them. I'm actually kind of interested to do some, <laughs> like to look into the digital advertising a little bit. Um, so yeah, you can have Menard. Yeah, I'll take Menard. It'll, it'll be great. I'll do. I, I could do some field work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For those of you who don't know, Menard's is a hardware store in the Midwest, uh, and so if you don't live in the Midwest, you may not have ever heard of it before. Um, but it's basically like a Home Depot kind of thing or Lowe's or whatever. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. If if you have a chance to like and subscribe and write a review for the show or tell people about the show, we would be most grateful for you taking that time to do those things. That's it. That's all I got. Do you have anything? Any, any final words, uh, Chad? Nope, I don't. 